Lord, what a privilege it is to gather as your people this morning, grateful for what you've done in each and every one of our lives. And I ask, Lord, as this word is brought forth this morning, that it would meet everyone's need as we come to this text. That you would take our minds and think through them, take my lips and speak through them, take our wills and bend them to your own, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe we're here at the week of Thanksgiving, isn't it? And so we're beginning to wrap up the Pentecost season. Next week is Christ the King Sunday. Two weeks from today is Advent. Five weeks from today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And then Christmas Eve and joy to the world, eh? You know, it just, it just, it just, we're on this mouse wheel, it feels at times, it doesn't it? But here we are, and it is a joyful time, it's a joy of the season, but it's not so for everybody, right? We as Christians must recognize that there are those among us who are really struggling with the realities of life, life, loss of loved ones, struggling with life circumstances, struggling with the big questions of life. No matter where we are, there are those, even in our midst, that are they're struggling with those issues, and we do so together, and we welcome that. That's what I pray makes us a different place, that even sometimes in our little bit of skepticism, we come, and we come to the text, and we come to one another, and we're a learning community that seeks to follow the Lord together. And so today on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we're going to look not only at the goal of being a thankful people, but how we can be a faithful people under the Lord in this real, on-the-ground world, which at times stinks. Right? And so we're going to look at this together in the book of James. So I encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of James. If you're visiting with us, you can find it in the back of your bulletins. Because James is writing so that we can understand what the marks of a true Christian are. Not so that we can look at others and say, you fall short, but that we can look at ourselves and say, I fall short. All right? James is writing this early in the Christian church so that they, they can begin to become mature believers. This is what mature believers look like because that's what we want to be is mature believers in Jesus Christ. You know, we don't want to keep spiritually just filling out, you know, Moses macaroni arts and crafts like we do in Sunday school, right? We want to, we want to really grow in Christ together. Because the issue in James' day was, well, the entire church were baby Christians. I mean, we have read the New Testament. They haven't, when you think about it. And so James is writing, because the church was brand new, to reveal to them, this is what a genuine Christian life looks like. And so today, we're just going to look at verses 17 and 18. There's so much in this passage. But I think to keep the spirit of thanksgiving, it's best that we just stay there. For James says, if we're going to deal with life, when it's good and when it's not so good. We're going to meet life as a follower of Jesus Christ with faith, discipline, and self-control. And the question then becomes, how? Where do I get such strength? Where do I get the resources to live? How can I be a thankful life? Because the average Cleveland West Shore William and his wife Wendy asks the question, you know, 
okay. I want to be strong when life hits me hard. I want to I want to keep moving forward, put my head down and suck it up. But I need something to do so. And what this text is showing us is there is a motivation and a power through relationship with Jesus Christ in order that we can flourish in this life. Let's look at this. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So let's look first at the motivation that we have as Christians. First, James says here that a Christian is somebody who has learned not just to enjoy every good and perfect gift, but to see what's behind every good and perfect gift. C.S. Lewis beautifully states this in Mere Christianity in his chapter on hope. Lewis says that when you get into the presence of good gifts, such as a great piece of music, standing on a beautiful seashore, listening to a great piece of music, having coffee across from the person you're falling in love with, a beautiful face, a beautiful landscape, a beautiful piece of music. Sometimes you're overwhelmed, you're overtaken with the very palpable sense that you're in the presence of something that you've wanted your entire life. And this thing or person embodies it. And you think to yourself, if I have this, I will finally be happy. So Lewis says, when we discover that, we say to ourselves, marry him or her. Or we say, take that job, or build that house, or buy that music. And the really good thing about music, it's so easy now. Just pay $10 a month, and you can take any music from 3,500 songs. It's easy. You used to have to go down to a music store, right? But you say that, and you say, how can I get it? And then when you get it, you say, finally, I have found that thing. I know what he's talking about. I certainly hope you do, too. Sometimes there's a certain part of a musical piece, and it seems to point to something. There's some extraordinary sense in that piece of music in which it seems to embody something you want, something bigger than yourself, something that, that comes by every now and then, there's a thrill to it. It's a kind of a metaphysical thrill that, that consoles you when everything else in your life is askew. And I have found, I, after I've become well familiar with that music, I can't go back to that piece of music. It doesn't give me the same effect that when I had when I first heard it. You ever had that? Lewis is saying, and what James is saying in this passage, is that those things that really are the bearers of light, they're not the sun, they're like the moon. The moon is always changing its light because it's not light in itself. It's merely reflecting the sun. And in the same way, the music, the romance, the seashore, the job actually are good gifts, but they actually don't have within them 
the thing that we sense through them. It might have been that I heard Mozart's 40th symphony when I was falling in love with Kimmy. But I remember that piece of music absolutely giving me goosebumps. If you've never heard it, go home and Google it. It's phenomenal. And when I heard it, I thought, I got to have it. I love that piece of music. But you know, about a few years later, I'm sitting in the doctor's office and I'm hearing it over a wobbly speaker in Muzak type of music, and it just didn't sound the same. And it's the same thing when you've heard the Beatles, I want to hold your hand for the 800th time, or Van Halen's Dance the Night Away for the 750th time, whatever piece of music it was, right? Because that music isn't nearly as good as I first heard it. It's not as big. That there's not light in that music, so to say. The thing that it pointed to was something else that I desperately wanted. And that's what Lewis is saying. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says, When you stand before the object, the gift, the beautiful woman, or handsome man, when you see the seashore, after the music ends, the landscape loses its celestial beauty, you'll suddenly realize that beauty has smiled upon you, but it has not welcomed you. It has not been accept you have not been accepted into that beauty. You've not been taken into that dance. It was not that the physical objects we were after, but for the indescribable something of which they, for the moment, become the messengers of something bigger. Lewis says it this way, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we always seem from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. We are to shine as the sun and be given the morning star. Ah, we do not merely want to see beauty. We want something hardly to be able to be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. But this is the promise of the gospel that one day God will give us the morning star and put on the splendor of Jesus Christ. The leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that someday, God willing, we will get in. We will put on the glory of nature, or rather, of that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Isn't that beautiful? And what James is saying, when you get a good gift... You have to see there's something behind it. The Father of lights. And it's a perfect light. It's an ultimate light. It's not, the, it's the sun, not the moon. It's an unshifting light. Now James says, if you understand that, you'll endure anything. See, this is very extremely practical. How do you deal with life when life stinks? Here it is. And on the one hand, the Christian life is no aesthetic. Every good, perfect gift is from above. You know what that word means. It means 
really practically get your gifts to get get your friends together and have a good meal together around the fire. And even that is from God. It means go ahead and listen to Mozart's 40th symphony, even though Mozart was an absolute scumbag. He was awful person, people. He wrote beautiful music. My friends, it's called the doctrine of common grace. That a great meal, a great friendship, a wonderful seashore, a terrific piece of music are good gifts, and they're all from God, every one of them. It's common grace. How merciful is God? God throws out into the world an enormous amount of just common sense and wisdom into our world. There's talent and beauty out there, and he gives it to people. He gives it to communities regardless of whether they believe him or not, regardless of whether they're Christians or not. And Christians are able to deal with life because they don't just pull up their bootstraps and suck it up and keep going and say something like, oh my goodness, that person's not a Christian. I can't listen to that music. No. Every good and perfect gift. Get out there. Enjoy it. That they are gifts from God. Now that doesn't mean every piece of music is a gift from God. Don't get me wrong. All right, I can take you to unknown music that isn't good to listen to, but if it's a good and perfect gift, it's from God. Appreciate God. Praise God as you're listening to it. Enjoy it, but don't mistake these things for the reality to which they point, or you will be continually disappointed. The old Scottish preacher Samuel Rutherford said it this way, Our little inch of time suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home in heaven. When once Christ shall thrust your weary traveler's head on his breast, you will find just the first of one of his kisses will pay for 500 years of a sore heart. See, my friends, don't sell your birthright for a cup of beef stew. You know, we went through Genesis, right? You remember Esau and the beef stew? You know, Esau was the, had the birthright. He was the oldest. He had this huge inheritance. He came back in after a night of hunting. But he's an impulsive man. And Jacob, his little brother, is cooking the beef stew. And he's cooking it up. And Esau says, give me that stew. And Jacob says, why should I? You know, I cooked it. And he said, I'll do anything for that stew. And Jacob, who's no hero, remember, says, I'll give it to you. Give me your birthright. In other words, give me all your inheritance. And Esau, what good is my inheritance if I die? So he gives him his inheritance, his birthright. It's an incredible story. And you think to yourself about Esau, what an ass. What an idiot. Who would, who would do that? Who would trade his morning breakfast of beef stew for his father's inheritance? You would. You do. And I would too. And I have. Because you marry the woman and she doesn't turn out to who you'd wanted her to be. Or the man and he didn't turn out to who you wanted him to be. 
And then you become so angry with one another, and you say to yourself, life stinks. You build the house at the seashore, and all of a sudden you realize you have to maintain that piece of property. Right? Or you take the job, and you say, finally, now I can settle in. And then you go 0 and 10 and get fired. What's James saying here? He's saying they're good gifts if you only see them as gifts. Because they're shifting and they're changing in their moons. They're not sons. If you see them as they are, you'll be able to endure, persevere, and even enjoy them. And if you don't, you'll become bitter. You have to look beyond and behind. Because what we're after is, as Lewis says, we're after the morning star. He's referring to Revelation 2. James, earlier in the chapter, verse 12, says, You're after the crown of life. To the one who perseveres, there awaits a crown of life. Because this whole first chapter is, he starts off with, Consider it all joys, brothers, when you go through various trials. Wait. You know, I give my life to Christ, right? I should have health, wealth, and happiness. That's the American prosperity gospel, friends, and it's a lie from the pit of hell, all right? Because that's not real life on the ground, Christian discipleship and living. But he says, to the one who perseveres, there awaits a crown of life. It just means, like, you enjoy the good gifts, but don't you dare sell them the wedding supper of the Lamb for Esau's morning breakfast. Don't sell the kisses of Jesus for the kisses of someone else. Don't play Christian and live however the heck you want. If there's a creator God, and there is, but is there a creator God? If there's not, your life is meaningless and you're just a bunch of cells. If there is a God, it means only what's done for him will last. It's either one or the other. There's no in-between. Either our lives are meaningless and nothing makes any difference at all, or else the wedding supper of the land is coming, and it means everything. And there are people I know right now who are living very much like Esau. They're saying, well, I believe there's a God. If there is a God, then he has said this, and I should do that, and this I shouldn't do, and yada, yada, yada. It's a bunch of rules. I'm so hungry, but what good is my birthright, birthright if I don't have this beef stew? Christian, you're supposed to fill your mind with this reality. If there is a God, and you're faithful to him, and you give yourself to him, that's what you're in for, and that's your motivation for daily living. It's as simple as that. We have to mentally dwell, think, and reflect on his love for us in Jesus. And keep that in our hearts and minds. And not sell Esau's morning breakfast. Not sell our inheritance. Not selling the crown of life that is ours to come. Some years ago, I was reading through the Bible, and I got to that text in Revelation 2, 28. To the one who overcomes, I will give the morning star. To the ones who overcome, to the ones who don't sell 
their birthright for Esau's morning breakfast. They say, I'm after the crown. I'm after that which endures. I'm after that which truly matters. I'm after the sun, not the moon. I can enjoy it. I can enjoy the moons, but they're not the sun. He will go to that place where it says, to the one who overcomes, I will give the morning star. So I was studying that passage, and I started to look at commentators. What is the morning star? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm serious. I have no idea, because a lot of guys say it's Jesus. Yeah. Okay, when, when, we, when we go into eternity, we get Jesus. That's true. But is that all there is? There's others that keep going on and on about what the morning star. And so... I haven't the slightest idea what that means, but I can tell you this, I can't wait for it. I think that's fair. We Westerners got to know. This book is not about you. This book is about Jesus and his love for you and me, for the world. You can't break down the getting of the morning star. And... If you don't know that there's a God, and that there's nothing to live for, and this is all just arbitrary, right and wrong, it's just a matter of your opinion. In the end, we die, and we become food for worms. Well, there's really nothing to live for, is there? There's nothing to die for. There's nothing really worth being heroic for. But on the other hand, if this is true, there is a God and you can know him, you can honor him and you will get the morning star, then nothing is worth losing that for. Absolutely nothing. And we can endure anything, die if necessary. You see, that's our motivation, ladies and gentlemen. And that's what he gives you and he promises he will give you in this relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why Lewis is able to say the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that someday, God willing, we will get in. We will put on the glory, the perfect heavenly light, the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. That's our motivation. You have a whole new approach to life because you're looking at the crown of life. You're looking for the morning star. And there's a bigness about your life right now, even in the ordinary. And secondly, this relationship with Jesus Christ, verse 18, tells us that we have the power to live this life. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits in his creatures. There are people who say, because what, let me say, being brought us forth is another way of saying being birthed, okay? Being born again. By the word of truth. And there's people who say, yeah, I know born-again types of Christians. Some of them are all right, but a lot of them make me kind of nervous. We often talk like that today, that born-again Christianity is a kind of Christianity. But that's not what this text is saying. If you're a Christian, you are born again. You are birthed again. All right? It's absolutely necessary and so there's always people who will say things like, oh, I think I believe that I'm born again. But to take it really that seriously, 
that's really not necessary. What's really necessary is you live by the golden rule. What's really necessary is that you live like the Sermon on the Mount. You know? Turn the other cheek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do not be anxious for everything. Anything. That's the most important thing, is to live like that. And if you are thinking like that, or if you ever have thought like that, may I ask you, really? Really? Honestly? Do you realize how hopeless and naive that type of thing is to say? Do you know what the golden rule is? Do you know what it means to turn the other cheek? Anyone who really reads the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious for anything. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's two responses, right? Wow, it's common sense. The world would be a great place if we all lived like this. You know? The second response is not only that this is reasonable and that this is the way we ought to do, but if you look at with any self-knowledge at all at the Sermon on the Mount, you will say, well, unless I'm born again, I can't live this way. There's no possible way I can live the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who says you don't have to be born again, just live like the Sermon on the Mount, has never read the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And part of it, Bob just read. So the first thing we learn here is there's an absolute necessity for an outside intervention to come into our lives because you don't birth yourself, right? There's a power from outside that comes in. And the second thing we learn here about this power is that it's a humbling thing. To become a Christian is to be born spiritually. Now, I don't know if you've been around any newborn babies lately. I've had the privilege of being around several this year, and it's an absolute joy, and we rejoice with Peggy and Jim Joyce, their grandparents, uh, Megan McCarty and Jeremy, had their first baby, Elizabeth, this week. You know, and Elizabeth came out of the womb. You don't put a dress on her and say, all right, Elizabeth, let's go. Time to go home. Walk out. She's utterly helpless and needs support and love and nurture. And what James is saying, he was brought us forth, means is that we're utterly helpless. It's telling us, if you want the power to deal with life, you have to start at the bottom. Not with your PhD, not with your, your, your master's degree, not with your successful business, not with even your master's of divinity. To become a Christian, you start, to the, you start as a baby, and you come in, you receive this new life, and you have to say, Lord, what do I do next? And you take baby steps. It takes a terrific amount of humility. Just the idea of being born again, the metaphor is a way of saying, if you want the power to live the life through the highs and lows of life, you start at the very bottom. And you do that through, James says, by the word of truth. It's fascinating. On the one hand, it means to be a Christian as you go by the truth. That's where you get the power to do the right thing. The truth becomes something alive in you. And it's not just an experience. It's not just a set of rules. It's a truth that comes inside of you and it becomes part of you and it's alive and it's real and it goes from the head to the heart and it's part of you. When you see someone being cruel, someone being oppressive, and someone being violent, 
and we say that's wrong, the animals can't see that. In other words, every higher level of sensation moves you into a higher level of life. That which you used to see as okay, you now see as wrong. And the more and more you mature in the Lord, you grow and you learn other things like that. And you'll never deal with the troubles of our lives unless we're ushered into this. And what it means is things that are either theoretical you or theoretical to you or nonsensical to sensical to you become solid now. The mercy of God, the crown of life, the morning star. When I was talking about those things earlier, did something stir in you? Did you start to say, that's what I want? Or did you say in your heart, yeah, stupid. What's he talking about? The way you know you've been born again into the new realm is things that used to be nonsense to you, theoretical, are now real. A person who's a Christian who is a person who says, hey, all my life I've believed in Jesus died on the cross, but then something happened. These things became real to me. And I want them. And we will never be able to deal with the tough stuff of the stuff of our lives unless the truth is no longer just an intellectual thing. It's a thing we know. It has become parts of us. If you've ever heard the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sing Psalm 3-3, do yourself a favor. Listen to it. It's you, O Lord, are a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. It's a glorious choral piece. And when you hear that, the Christian whole life flashes before your eyes. And you say, Lord, you are a shield for me, the glory and lifter of my head. Or do you say, eh, nice song. See, when you're born again, it's not like suddenly you get additional IQ points. I wish I did but I don't. All of a sudden you see solid things now that before were just theoretical. And they now console you and they move you to live for Jesus no matter your circumstances. And I know that when the truth becomes that real to you, you, O oh Lord, are my shield, the lifter of my head, my glory, a shield is something that I hold out in front of me. A shield is something that receives all the blows that I would receive were it not there. And after the battle that I endured, the shield is beaten up and I'm okay. I'm whole. I'm one piece because the shield has been my substitute. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield for me. I don't think David knew exactly all the implications of how God was being the shield for him and for us. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ took the blows that we deserved. Jesus Christ took the wrath that we deserved, and as a result, he now is our glory. Jesus Christ is our glory. He's the lifter of our head. That's the truth. That should make us weep. Then you're able to say when your veins are running with fire, this is where I stand. I'm not moving. 
unless truth is alive, unless truth has been born in you, you'll never be able to count all your trials joy to flourish in the good times and the bad. See, you need a truth as a living power in your life. You need the motivation that comes down from every good and perfect gift that comes from above. And if you have that, you'll be able to face life with the power of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And in fact, even though life stinks, it's also beautiful because of what he's doing in you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will enable us to make use of these great resources that you've given us in this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The motivation that we have and the power that we can make use of. They're all within our grasp. They're not far. And I pray, Lord, that there might be someone here this morning who recognized they need to be ushered into eternal life and born again, and I pray that you would help them to do just that. And on the other hand, I pray that you would help some of us who right now are having a great deal of difficulty because we're tempted to sell everything for Esau's beef stew. Holy Spirit, help us to take hold of the crown of life. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see that one kiss from you will deal with 500 years of a broken heart. Help us to know that those things, and let us to know that these realities shine so brightly to us that we can have the ability to face life with courage and the same power that Jesus did, who set his face like a flint toward the cross, did your will and died for us and has been highly exalted. So we ask, O oh Lord, that we might be like Jesus, for it's in his name we pray.